quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. In particular, if you have private sewer systems like a lagoon or some septics, I heard an engineer tell me that well, he said it needs the food to eat to keep in shape. And if it's been empty for so long... Your infrastructure can fail. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I am your host, Joe Cornwell, and today I am joined by Ferd Neiman. Ferd is a mobile home park operator. He is a real estate lawyer and has a real estate law firm. Today, we are going to talk about all of the above. He was also a, a former county appraiser. Is that correct, Ferd? That's right. Kansas City, Missouri, Jackson County. Yeah. Awesome. I'd love to pick your brain on that as well, Ferd. Thank you so much for joining us. You got it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So tell me about your pre-real estate career and how you got into real estate law and then how you got into real estate. Sure. So I went to college here in Kansas City, played baseball at Rockford University, got a degree in finance accounting. Stuck around, got my MBA, and I sold insurance and mutual funds during that time period for about a year and a half. After that, I went to work at Jackson County as a financial analyst. I ended up working on commercial real estate tax incentive projects. You've heard of TIFs or tax abatements, mixed-use retail centers, governmental-type bond projects. So kind of a combination of projects. And then in the meantime, I was flipping houses and buying single-family rental houses on the side. Had a lot of exposure to developers and more complex real estate transactions. So I said, man, I want to do something bigger. Well, I couldn't really flip 100 houses, I figured. I couldn't really own 100 single family. The debt wasn't available. Bandwidth wasn't available. So I said, I want to do something better and greater. So I thought, oh, let's do apartments. Well, then I quickly found out that apartments were pretty competitive with people with a lot of sophistication and a lot of capital. So I didn't have enough capital in particular. So somewhere along the line, I was working at Jackson County, moved up, became the Director of Economic Development, Deputy Director of Government Affairs, and then the County Appraiser. And I went to law school part-time through then, so I got to get a little more nuanced on taxation and real property, syndications, things like that. And eventually found MH. I thought, okay, manufactured housing was not as competitive, low expense ratio, especially relative to, say, apartments, and higher cap rates. Those have compressed a lot in the last five plus years. But I thought, hey, let me give this a shot. So I started chasing self-storage and MH, decided to go the MH path. And I've done retail development as well. I, I worked at a law firm, did development for several years, and then left there, went in-house with a client, did a triple net shopping center development, started doing manufactured housing on the side. And then ultimately, I was like, making better returns and more money doing MH on the side than practicing law or than doing real estate development. So I decided to do MH full-time, then COVID hit, and all of a sudden COVID taught us we don't really need retail, we don't really need office, we don't really need entertainment as far as like movie theaters, things like that, restaurants. What do we need? We need medical, we need industrial to ship for Amazon, and we need housing. In particular, we need affordable housing. So all of a sudden, all these REITs, all these PE groups started getting in my space, pushed the price 2x. Well... It worked out well for what I already owned, but when I wanted to buy more, I was like, man, I can't compete paying 2X. It doesn't make sense to pay 2X. So I said, I'll start practicing law again. So I launched the Mobile Home Park Lawyer podcast, 
It took off immediately and built out a whole law firm. We got 10 people now and we got about 30 people on the MH side because they dovetail for fundraising and for operational acumen and so on. So that's the quick version of how I got into the trailer park business, which we <laughs> like to call manufacturing housing. So what year did you get your law degree, your license? I started practicing law in 2014. Okay. And then what year did you transition from single family investing into the mobile homes? I bought my first mobile home park in 2014. So I had done single family from 2008 until 2014. And the single family I always did on the side. It had rentals and had flips and then started doing MH on the side and then eventually left practicing law and left real estate development to do MH full time in 18. Okay. During that 08 to 2014 time, how many deals were you doing a year? What did your business look like? Oh, on the single family, probably had about 20 deals in four or five years. So it wasn't four per year. At first it was buy one house, move in, house hack, renovate the basement, add a bedroom, renovate the upstairs, add a bedroom. Okay. Buy the house down the street, move in. Cause at the time I could move in and I could get a 5% down loan because it would be a conventional loan. I had to have the intent to live there. So I basically had lived there for a year. So I moved into eight different houses in eight different years and then flip a house on the side, but then keep the rentals. So I ended up having six or seven single family that were holds and then three duplexes, a farm, and then bought a mobile home park. And then that took several years to turn around the first mobile home park, about three years, used that cash, bought three more, use that cash, bought one more, and then I started syndicating. And then I was able to buy nine mobile home parks in 2021. I've now bought 24 mobile home parks, about 1,500 sites. And we generally hold those. We've sold a few, but generally buy and hold. I sold all the single family and duplex. I haven't flipped any more houses or anything. We own 350 mobile homes, but those are in parks, not individual on land. So what is your portfolio today? How many properties and how many lots? Right now we have 19 mobile home parks, about 1,250 sites, and those are the ones we actively own. We've got LP investments as a limited partner in some mobile mobile home park funds, some storage funds, some restaurants, some medical, three apartment complexes. So some of the LP stuff is I'll do the legal work and then I'm like, it looks like a good deal. Let me throw in some money. Or we sold a mobile home park in St. Louis, had about a million to 1031, so we did a tick with a client who did an apartment deal and got part of a $20 million project, but I'm not the operator of that project, but we're the second largest LP. What type of real estate law do you practice today? Has that changed over the years? Yeah, it's changed over the years. Historically did tax incentives and municipal stuff. We still do some tax incentives. I represent a couple of national car dealers in Kansas, Missouri on sales tax incentives and property tax incentives. But most of our clients are transactional real estate. Manufactured housing, we're probably one of the biggest in the country. We do other stuff, storage, apartments, et cetera, but you're blocking and tackling contracts, leases, title review, survey review. We'll do lender docs, seller finance, CMBS, Fannie Freddie. We do PPMs and syndications. We do a lot of zoning work. We have one guy in the office that does litigation. I don't do litigation. And then we do corporate stuff, operating agreements, LLCs. I mean, a lot of that comes with the syndication. And then just business consulting. I do a little bit of tax appeal. I do a little bit of operational consulting. Okay. Now, in these markets you're investing, is this all based in Kansas area or what markets are you in? For the mobile home parks, we're in Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri. So we own in five states that are all within a day's drive. On the law firm side, we're wherever the clients take us. We're probably 30 states. Now, some states we can't 
do certain scopes of work based on licensure or based on expertise in that locale. But as far as the real estate transactional, we do them all over the place. All right. And of all these types of deals you've done, what is your preferred type of property, type of asset, type of structure? Well, I mean, the preferred would be a stable with upside mobile home park. So say 70 to 80%. If it gets over 80%, it's super competitive because it's going to be eligible for agency debt. So if we can get something with 70% occupancy, it's not as competitive. Ideally, of course, off market, high cap rate. The more in the weeds on manufactured housing would be if the water is provided by the city and billed directly by the city. And if the sewer and trash is provided by the city and billed, because then you don't have to do very much. It becomes quasi-passive. And then obviously you want to be in a good market where people can afford to buy a house and people have credit, people have good employment. Your recession-proof employers, your hospitals, your, your city governments, your school districts, Walmart strong. If you can get prison, things like that. Basically government and universities don't go to business very often and they have middle-class jobs across the board that help our local economies. When I picture this market or community, how far from major metros would you say your average park is? Oh, they're spread. Some smaller markets can have their own metro. So, for example, I own a park in Marshalltown, Iowa. It's 48 minutes from Des Moines. Is it a Des Moines suburb? Well, if you look on bestplaces.net, it may say it's part of the Des Moines MSA, but I don't think anybody's really commuting from there. But it's got only 40,000 people, but it's got all your main job centers. It's got the big national retailers like Menards and places like that. So it can operate on its own hub. Iowa's a pretty strong economy because there's ag everywhere. So there's going to be a grain mill. There's going to be a Bobcat plant. There's going to be a John Deere distributorship. So that one is 48 minutes away. Others, we prefer to be in the heart of Columbia, Missouri. We've got 200,000 people. I've got parks in Kansas City that are not Kansas City addresses, but they're 20 mile away suburbs. And then we've got smaller properties in rural Illinois, and you gotta factor that into your assumptions. So a park in Columbia, we can infill and bring in 20 homes a year, perhaps. We have a park in Canton, Illinois, small town. We might take five years to bring in 20 homes, but if we buy it at 20 cents on the dollar, it's just a matter of the economics of it. You just have to underwrite your assumptions based on the variables at play and have some level of risk mitigation involved. Yeah, I'm based in Cincinnati. So I look at some of the rural mobile home parks that we still have here in Ohio. And a lot of them in the metro area have gone. A lot of these small suburbs and cities try to get rid of them and clear them out, so to speak, and redevelop them into subdivisions and things like that. But as you go further east, it gets more rural. And some of these might be an hour and a half from any sort of secondary city. So they're pretty far out there. And I guess if you're underwriting a deal like that, that would be something you may be a little bit more cautious about where you're not going to necessarily have the stable job opportunities and the diverse economy that you're having in, in some of these suburbs and secondary markets. That's right. In a case like that, you're going to want to make sure you have more than one employer because if you have one big employer, near my hometown, Quincy, Illinois, there was a meatpacking plant in Beardstown and it had 1,000 Hispanic workers. Well, ICE showed up and kicked everybody out. Well, all of a sudden, all the workers were gone and the plant shuts down. And that workforce was feeding the related economy, the gas stations, the grocery stores, the hotels, and so on. So you want to make sure you have more. Just underwrite your pricing. You can't pay top dollar because you got to think of your exit. You're not going to sell that park at a six cap, but you might have to sell it at a nine. Well, if you're buying it at a 12 and you can improve it to a 15, we well, got a lot of margin of safety there. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And you talked about exit. Sounds like in the beginning, you said you're still holding most of these parts. What is your strategy if you want to give us an example deal? It's a deal by deal basis and it, it sometimes changes. So for example, I had a park in St. Charles, Missouri, which is an affluent suburb of St. Louis. I thought I'd never sell it. I loved it. But some New York private equity firm decided they really wanted it. I listed it with a national broker and I gave them a price of $5 million. It was probably worth four, four and a quarter. Most of the offers came in the threes and the fours. Somebody came at five and somebody came at five, two. We went to highest and best. The guy at five, two went to five, six. So I sold it at a 5.2 cap 12 months ago, at the end of 23. What are the odds of getting a 4.2 cap on a 67 space mobile home park? Well, they really had a need, I don't know their specifics. If they had $20 million of dry powder and they had to place it to get their fees, they were gonna pay up. So that was a good deal. I didn't really wanna sell it, but for that price, I couldn't afford to keep it. Still the old Sam Zell analogy of Warren Buffett. If you don't sell it today for that price that somebody's willing to pay, you essentially bought it today. So we're opportunistic. In that case, I was unwilling to buy it at $5 million. We were able to regurgitate that money, buy another couple mobile home parks, put some money in that apartment deal in Kansas, and it made sense. So overall, for mobile home parks, a lot of the small and medium-sized parks, so say 20 to 60 sites, you cannot afford a full-time competent manager. So you have to buy two and three or four in the same region to share the manager. So that impacts your disposition strategy where I might want to sell this park, but it's paying for 30% of the manager. If I sell that park, well, then I can't afford that manager in the other two parks. So I'll hold on to it. Or maybe I'll pull them together into pods. So ultimately, you get over 1,000 sites, you start to get some economies of scale. You get over 2,000 sites, now you're really attractive at some point for an exit to a PE group. REITs are hard to sell to. I've not sold to a REIT. Some of my clients have. They're pretty particular on what they want. So you're probably more PE group that's going to buy a hodgepodge portfolio over multiple cities or multiple regions. So generally we try to accumulate, you think about a wheel, you pick your hub and then spokes on the wheel and buy parks around the wheel. And if you've already got one in the center and on the edge of the wheel, try to buy numerous on that route. So in Missouri, there's Interstate 70. So we have parks on the west side and the east side and the middle of I-70, and then plus or minus some variants. Same thing up to Des Moines, and then Marshalltown was an add-on from Des Moines. Just extend the wheel as opposed to getting too spread out. And with your business, what is your structure? What is your role today? And then give us an example like these markets you're talking about. How are you in your business actually managing these assets? Well, we manage them in-house. Obviously, we got a team. I'm the CEO of the property management company and the sole owner of that. And then on the individual properties, so let's say that deal in Marshalltown. We will have Marshalltown land. We'll own the land. Marshalltown homes will own the homes. Marshalltown investors will be the private placement memorandum entity of which I will be the GP. Or if I have more than one GP, I'll be the manager of the GP. And then we'll have as many LPs as necessary. And then we typically would pay a PREF and then have, say, eight PREF. 40 to the GP, 60 to the LP. If we hit a 15% IRR, any dollars above the 15 IRR, the LPs drop to 20 thereafter, GP gets 80. So we're able to get strong splits because the nature of MH is you can really add value by infill. You can increase a property three, four, five X, where it's really hard to do that on other asset classes in short order. So if you do that, you you got to implement it. You can have really high yields. You can get higher splits. So as far as implementation, we've got property managers. We've got construction managers. we got construction 1099 NW2 people on our team. 
And then we've got in-house accounting because we have a law firm, they're a separate entity, but we have plenty of legal talent right down the hallway to help with leases and syndication docs and other corporate docs, both the Abandoned Housing Act, you know, litigation defense, insurance, et cetera. You said something interesting there. Obviously, you're not giving legal advice, but in your opinion, would you advise people to do an entity for land, an entity for the actual homes, and then you obviously have a separate entity for the actual syndication piece? Is that how you would typically do it on a deal like that with mobile homes? Yeah, homes? that's how I would do it. You want the land entity to be the real estate holder. The homes have their own liability, so you might as well separate them, and then you keep your books separate. Because if you end up selling, or in particular, if you refinance with Fannie Mae, I've done three refinances with Fannie Mae, and they don't count the home's income, and most CMBS lenders won't either. So you need to have that income peeled off in a separate entity, and then you get a different cap rate or a different valuation metric on that if, if they do count the home's income. A buyer will count the homes for some value. Perhaps they'll capitalize NOI, perhaps they'll just take some sort of shell value. But keeping those entities safe helps, and then also your home's entity needs a dealer's license. It can have different taxation if you get caught as a dealer, so to speak. And then both those entities are single member LLCs, so they don't have to file tax returns. There's not a whole lot of extra cost. They both will flow up as disregarded entities to the syndication entity, and that's the entity that has to comply with the SEC through the exempt offerings through the private, private placement memorandum. Now, some deals I don't have investors, so in that case, I won't have a PPM, but I'll still have an investor's entity. It might be me and my dad and my CFO, Logan, and then three of us alone deal, and then we'll still have a land LLC and homes LLC, separate checking accounts. We keep capital accounts and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's best practices to do that way. Now, our property management company, Augustine Property Management, is a separate entity. We sign a property management contract. It hires the people. It pays the bills. It has the business license and dealer's licenses, things like that, too. So all of these layers are to help with organization, but also reduce potential liability. That's right. Okay. Now, as you've done, obviously, a vast number of these mobile home deals, for the audience, myself included, who have never done a mobile home park, what would your advice be to them on some major risks to look out for if people are interested in trying to find these types of deals? Talk maybe a little bit about some mistakes you've ran into. A key risk that people sometimes don't properly evaluate is what's the value of a vacant site? So let's say it's a 50-site mobile home park with 30 occupied. Well, some people say, great, I'll just bring in 20 homes. I'll find the homes, I'll install the concrete, I'll put in the deck, I'll put in the driveway, I'll hook up the water, sewer, electric. Great, add in 20 more, it's going to be considerably more valuable. And that's true if you can bring in the homes. You have to look at your zoning as either legal conforming, legal non-conforming, i.e. grandfathered, or illegal. And if it's legal non-conforming, as most mobile home parks are, because they typically are 40 to 60 years old, which predates most zoning codes, in particular zoning codes that pertain to manufactured housing, then you have to get really granular of what your rights are relative to the city because like I have a client right now, we're suing a city because that city's saying those lots are abandoned. So he's got a hundred vacant sites. In his mind, they're worth 50,000 an occupied site or more. So they go, oh, I'll just fill them up. We'll add $5 million of value. You can't do that in an apartment. Boom, we're just going to double the value right away. It's like, yeah, if you get the electricity turned on, which the city controls. So you got to make sure you have the rights or you got to fight to ensure them. So that's a big one. And then just do your market analysis. You're talking earlier about rural markets. I see deals all the time. People are like, oh, it's great. You got all this upside. And I'm like, yeah, the average income is 21000 the average single-family house is 60000 
and no one wants to live there. And by the way, your infrastructure is decaying. Sometimes infrastructure falls apart because of overuse. It's not big enough. Sometimes the opposite, where it, it's been so desolate for so long that the sewer pipes have rotted away. Because the last 500 feet have not seen fluid for 30 years. In particular, if you have private sewer systems like a lagoon or some septics. I heard an engineer tell me that when he said, it needs the food to eat to keep in shape. And if it's been empty for so long, your infrastructure could fail. That makes sense. So you're talking about the data and how you're underwriting these deals. What specifically are you doing or your team doing when you're underwriting a new deal as far as the market data, macroeconomic, all that stuff? The real quick analysis is each deal goes through the first 30-second analysis, and then if it goes to the next level, there's more, and then you eventually get into more complicated discounted cash flow analysis and hurdles and all that jazz. But the real quick is just how many sites, how many occupied sites, what's the current rent, what's the market rent, and then what's the anticipated expense ratio? Well, that's going to be based on the type of the water sewer and the size and density. So a property with 100 sites that has 99 occupied it's going to be a really efficient as far as gross revenue coming in relative to expense load. But if you only got 10 out of 100 occupied, you're going to be mowing a lot of grass. You're going to be pushing a lot of snow for only 10 people. So your expense ratio is higher. And then if it's a private well or a private treatment plant for the sewer, well, now you got to maintain those. you got to hire an engineer to test them. As opposed to city water, city sewer, you got a lot less risk there. So the expense ratio is a factor. And then what's the market cap rate? And that's kind of an art and a science to figure out what that market cap rate is supposed to be. So ideally, we look for deals that have below market occupancy in a market we can change, that have below market rent, that has an expense scenario we can control based on infrastructure and billback system, and then in a market that has a cap rate that we can either influence by improving the quality or has an underlying strong cap rate based on the market demographics. And the one thing I have consistently heard with mobile home park investors and operators is they stay away from these sewer lagoons. Is that something you were mentioning? Is there anything that you absolutely won't touch? Won't touch. Lagoon is not ideal. Private well is not ideal. I have a park in Iowa I mentioned is both well and lagoon. Now we bought that park for 4,000 a site. If we fix it, it's worth 60,000 a site. It's got 150 sites. So do the math for 10 million of upside Will you tolerate some of that maintenance obligation, some of that downside? Now, it's a big if and a lot of steps of implementation and years of work. But those are the big ones. Lagoons, private gas and electric can be dicey. You don't see that very often, but sub-metered gas or something electric. To me, the biggest scary point is if you have small lots, because modern homes are bigger. Think about, I have an F-150. It's way bigger than the F-150 my dad drove 30 years ago. In fact, the new Ford Ranger is as big as the F-150 of 30 years ago. Well, guess what? When the mobile home park was built in 1950, there was no F-150. It was the little pickup truck, maybe the Model T almost. So if those homes are still there and they're the Model T version, at some point they're going to die. And if you can't replace them with a modern size home, in theory, you can get a tiny home or a park model, but those are way overpriced based on what you get. And nobody wants to really live in a 600 square foot unit. The benefit of a mobile home is it's 16 by 76 is 1,216 square feet. I can get you in there for $800 a month. Holy cow, yeah. that's two thirds in the dollar compared to a B minus apartment. So small lots are a deal killer if you need infill or if you have old homes. Now again, a perfect market can solve some of that. 
And then just low dollar markets. Some of the markets in the South, lot rents are $100 a month. No disrespect to lower income people, but if the customer is living by choice in housing for $100 a month, it's probably a low quality property, probably more drugs, more crime, probably they can't afford to maintain their home. They don't have stable employment. You can't bring in new homes and try to sell them to them. So it's hard to fix a property that doesn't have any revenue to throw at the problems. Yeah, makes sense. So there's actually a threshold where the current rents are so low. Most commercial real estate investors look at that as that's their upside going from current to market. But if it's at such a low point, it's going to be really hard to actually bring that to whatever the theoretical market rent may be. That's right. Because if they're super low, then that probably is the market also. $100 rents mean the market's 120 I'd much rather have... 450 rents and the market's 500. Okay, makes sense. So let me transition here. We are recording this in early January 24, new year. A lot of people talking about the market and what may happen. What are your thoughts, your expectations, and your underwriting on the real estate market in 2024? Well, I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be in trouble based on maturities on loans. We've, we're already seeing some of that. I think the rates are going to stay still for a while and then start to trickle down. I mean, I feel like they almost have to. Two years ago, everybody seemed to be saying they can't go up forever. They can't go up at all because the Fed has so much debt. The Fed's going to go bankrupt. Well, what's the deficit now? $34 trillion. They don't seem to care about the deficit. You'd think it's going to be a practical problem, but they just keep kicking that can. Mm -hmm. But practically, I think for the good of the economy, they're going to have to keep rates starting to stall off or go down. I think costs are going to be up forever. I think that the consumers in general have made really bad decisions and learn some really bad habits because COVID funny money. I see people that are trying to buy a $30,000 house that can't get approved, but they got that $80,000 Mustang souped up with a $950 payment. Mm -hmm. You can't get approved for a house because your car is worth two, three X. Actually, your car is worth two X. You paid three X. You're upside down. So I think that that's going to cause challenges for the consumer, which is going to trickle into the real estate market and it's going to limit rent growth. So you think as far as rent growth and apartments and mobile home parks, as you think affordability is the, the major issue that's going to happen this year? In many instances, yes. If you've got a, you know, a property on Maine and Maine, okay, it's different. You can kind of just ride it up. I think people who underwrote 10, 20% rent increases forever are going to be dialing those down big time. And I've seen it with some of my clients, especially people that bought with some sort of bridge debt or mes debt, and now they're stuck. We're like, oh, crap, the NOI didn't go up 40% in two years. In fact, the NOI is down because we had to stable off rents in order to keep the occupancy up and our expenses went up. So we have less NOI. Our 4% loan is now looking like 8 and the hard money is feeling hard all of a sudden. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, let's transition to the best ever lightning round. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is your best ever book recommendation? Rocket Fuel is one that I just read. I got lots that I like, but Rocket Fuel, it's like the sequel to Traction on the visionary integrator combo. We're going through some of that processes with our company now, so it's top of mind, so it's really, it was a really strong book. Best ever way you like to give back? With my time, I would say giving back is talking shop and mentoring rookies or younger folks in the space. Financially, we give a lot of money to our church and to pro-life causes, but time-wise, is mentoring others. And give me a mistake you made in one of your investment deals and the lesson you learned from it? Oh, my toughest mobile home park. We just sold it actually like two weeks ago and we ended up making money on it still, but it, it was a slog. I'd say the biggest mistake is not going with my gut. I had an acquisitions guy that came and 
told me what it was worth, and I basically said, I don't want to pay more than X. But in order to get it done, he begged me, begged me, and even without permission went and made an offer, an amendment to pay more. And we paid 50000 more than we should have. We paid six fifty instead of six, And then everything else seemed to go wrong. We should have made millions of dollars on that deal based on how much work we put into it, and we didn't. So I think just going against my gut wasn't really FOMO or chasing the deal as much as just like, all right, let's have a team atmosphere and don't be the iron will here. And But I've only been convinced against my mind on a handful of occasions ever. It never seems to go well. And where can people connect with you and learn more about what you guys are up to? I'm on LinkedIn, just under my name for Neiman. I've got a website, mobilehomelawyer.com. For the law firm side, you can find my podcast there as well. And then on the syndication side, our company name is Third IV Properties, so thirdfourproperties.com. Awesome, and we'll be sure to link to that in our show notes as well. Ferd, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, if you got any value from today's show, please leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. Make sure you're following us on social media, and I hope you all have a best ever day. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access. And you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.